And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. All right, and welcome back to another episode of the Startup Hustle podcast. Really quickly, just want to remind you that today's episode of Startup Hustle is sponsored by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Now, today we have with us, I'm, I'm very excited about our guest today. Um, she and I, I have heard incredible things about her, but have not had the opportunity to connect just yet. But we have with us today Rashida Phillips, and she is the new executive director of the American Jazz Museum, which is one of Kansas City's greatest cultural institutions. And so I'm just, I'm so excited to have you here, Rashida. Thank you for being with us today. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, yay. Okay, good. This, this is going to be great. I can already feel it. Well, so, so let's go ahead and just jump right into it. I'm, I'm really intrigued by you, kind of by your history, by your story, how you came to be here in Kansas City leading this, this great organization. So why don't you just start right there and tell us a little bit about yourself? You know, it's definitely been a journey, I should say that. Because I was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, and I, you know, every time I talked to my mom and I told her, I'm interested in this job in Kansas City. I want to come back to the home state. And she, you know, she says to me, why? I worked so hard to get you away from Missouri because I wanted you to have these other opportunities in other states because she was uh, raised in the downstate area. So the boot heel of Missouri is where my mother is from and my father is from Mississippi. So sort of Southern born and raised and, you know, she worked as a school teacher. My dad worked for the post office and in the military. And they've been great citizens, but I think they thought, you know, their kids should go out and be free and become what they need to become. But I told her this is a about that, right? This is sort of recognizing their hard work, recognizing my hard work coming home. And I say that because I spent quite a few years in Chicago before coming here. I spent about 16 years of the core of my career in Chicago. And Chicago was an important and fantastic city, not only because it's a major city and it has all of the bells and whistles and amenities that one could dream of, but because it really became a training ground and how to sort of lead a cultural revolution in many ways. So I think how the things that are sort of bubbling up across the nation uh, in terms of uh, women leadership comes up to mind. There was a, a lot of intentionality around putting Black women leaders in the heads of positions and, and big entities there in Chicago. Uh, there's always been an activist center there. So young people being activists and really getting involved in what matters. Uh, you know, at one point in my career at Chicago Humanities Festival, we hosted folks uh, like Patrice Cullors from Black Lives Matter. You know, some of all of these issues that are kind of bubbling up again lately or things that we have been reviewing in Chicago over the past years or so. So I just feel like coming here to Kansas City at this time, I'm at the right moment to lead the sort of the next level of the American Jazz Museum. Well, sure. And, and I love the fact that you seem to kind of liken 
you know, the American Jazz Museum, which is a, a both a musical and a cultural kind of touchstone. And you're you're equating that and linking that with activism, because the fact is, you know, the history of jazz and the the cultural significance of jazz would be nowhere without um, without activism and without, you know, the, the black community that created and propagated this art form. And so so I love that you you have a background in activism and you have a background, but you, you're actually helming an organization that is a, a cultural touchpoint. Um, so, so tell me, is, is there a link between the two in your mind? Like, what does that look like? I think absolutely. First of all, I should say, you know, jazz really came to me as kind of a vehicle, right? A vehicle to understand my history, a vehicle to understand music more freely, more deeply, and really not only became a way of expression, but became a way of, you know, particularly Black Americans really telling their story here in this country. I say that because, you know, I started singing jazz seriously, believe it or not, in high school. You know, I was a junior in high school. I played this jazz diva named Geneva Lee Brown on the 1940s radio hour. And she was the only black woman in that cast. And she really had to sort of fight for a presence. She really had to have kind of this great persona on, on radio, like we're doing a podcast now. So maybe that was my early days of that too. Um, and I just fell in love with the music. I fell in love with the expression. I really understood sort of the social implications of what it meant to ground yourself in that music and in that history and express yourself. So from there, I really, really made it sort of my pathway to, to delve deeper into what jazz meant. Lyrically, what it meant, what it meant for the people. You know, I went to study into Oberlin College, which is very much a, a, a progressive, you know, a college that really was the first college to educate Blacks and women. So it was there was sort of a charter that was laid out before me when I picked up on jazz music. And it really just sort of sparked my, um, my, my humanity and my interest, I think, in how to sort of stretch um, what it meant for me to use that music to teach, to learn, to sort of, in many ways, spread the message of, of democracy and freedom. And it's, that's what's interesting that it sort of led me to the American Jazz Museum because you know, I started really digging deep, even more deeply at the, the National Jazz Museum in Harlem uh, when I graduated from Rutgers University. So I have a degree in jazz history and research. And it's funny because it was one of those degrees that when I told my parents I'm getting a master's in this, they had no doubt that I would fulfill it, right? Most people would think, well, that's such a niche degree. Like, what sort of position do you get? Do you become a professor? Do you just become a vocalist? What are you doing with this? And so for me to come full circle back to this work is not only important, like I mentioned, for my life's purpose and life charter, but the fact that I'm landed in a place called the American Jazz Museum. And I've really been speaking about that lately, us being the American Jazz Museum, because we are not only in the heartland of America, but it's really important to notice that, you know, our impact in this country and the sort of fabric of who we are as a people is, a, is, an, is an American journey. It's an American story. So for me to come back to the middle of America, and lead this organization is honestly a dream come true. That's, that is awesome. I, I just love hearing that. So, so one of the things that I want to ask you, and, and this might even be a little bit early in the conversation, but I just, I can't wait to hear it. So, so you've been at the American Jazz Museum for several months now. Um, how long yeah. has it been? Since January. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and then kind of, th there's been a whole lot of upheaval 
during your time there. And, and I think that the, the Jazz Museum was shut down for a period because of COVID-19. Have you opened back up again? Yes, we have opened. So yeah. this is our second week of reopening. Excellent. So, so tell me, tell me about that. Like you, you joined an organization that I'm sure that you had done your research, but you weren't actually in the organization in the day to day. And then you get kind of thrust into this position, you know, new, old to you, but new to you city, um, new institution, new job. And then, you know, COVID-19 hits. And then we have right, um, right down where the American Jazz Museum is, you know, that's at 18th and Vine, which is a, another cultural touchstone for Kansas City. Um, you know, we have civil unrest related to Black Lives Matter and, and equity. And so you're, you're joining this organization at a time of great upheaval. Like people keep talking about unprecedented times. And, you know, I, I hate that hearing that term used over and over again, but they are unprecedented times. Um, talk to me a little bit about that. What, what's that been like? It's been interesting. I can tell you that. So not only coming back to my home state, but as you mentioned, I had probably three solid months of hitting the ground and running and and what that meant was sort of getting out and meeting folks all across the city. What that meant was trying to understand the cultural sort of dynamic that was happening here in Kansas City um, and just sort of understanding the placement of this organization, as you mentioned in 18th and Vine, the historical importance of that, and really picking up the reins of an organization that's been around since the late 90s, right? So already I sort of understood that I'm coming into a place that needs to be revamped. I'm coming into sort of uh, a center of entertainment and arts that really needs to, to be kicked up another notch at another level. So what I did is I spent quite a bit of time kind of listening when I first came in, quite a bit of time having conversations, whether that's with the staff, with community stakeholders, uh, with other cultural leaders across uh, the city regionally. And I had a lot of conversations about the arc of this organization, the arc of Kansas City. And I say that because it's culturally rich here. I mean, I was really pleased after many, many, many years that I've not been here, gosh, I probably hadn't been here in 30 years. So when I came, quite honestly, it was kind of a ghost town. It was not much happening. I mean, certainly folks were here and were people were warm and wonderful, but there just wasn't a lot that I saw happening. But coming back here, the sort of the the sort of the, the community rallying together to really support 18th and Vine really dealing with the situation of blight in this community. So these are sort of things, this was the sort of the landscape of where I landed. And this is pre-COVID and some of the stuff is happening now. And so all of a sudden COVID came right in the middle of all of that. And what I thought about that actually, it, believe it or not, you know, no one wants to see a health crisis. No one wants to sort of deal with, with people hurting, people hungry, people jobless, absolutely not. But what it did is it gave me a, a point of reflection, right? It gave me a time to sort of step back because I was so ramped up in understanding how things work here. I was so ramped up and sort of changing and shifting some of the, the internal workings that it really gave me a moment of pause. And I thought, this is an opportunity for me to not be inactive, but to really sit back and think about the opportunities that we have ahead of us, think about the digital implications and opportunities that we have. Uh, we've sort of boosted our website with all of these happenings, all of these ways to embrace and engage with the museum. But really, you know, not come in in that sort of big city way. I was coming from Chicago and I was kind of, you know, jumping all in and really 
you know, trying to make things move and happen. So it slowed me down because the pace, the pace here is a little bit slower and saying slow doesn't mean it's negative. It just means that it's poignant, right? So it gave me a moment to pull back and really, really have conversations with my staff one-on-one, even though it was over a Zoom, uh, sort of a Zoom way in talking. It gave me a chance to really think and strategize in this moment, how to pivot and how to uh, change some of the, the processes that were coming along the way. And it gave me a chance to improvise. I mean, jazz is about improvisation. So I always, you know, in my work and in my career, I've always learned to plan to unplan, is what I say, right? You have all of these grand ideas, you have all of these structures that you want to put in place. But at any minute, you know, all of that can change. And that that's the beauty of jazz is that you have sometimes a framework and a foundation, but then you open it up. And then you're allowed to sort of change things, shift things as needed, depending on what's what's thrown at you, right? It keeps you on your toes. So this has been this has been a moment of improvisation. Absolutely. So so one of the things that that I'm a, a huge believer in, um, and listeners will soon find this out. Um, I believe that you don't have to be an entrepreneur to be entrepreneurial. And so what you're what you're speaking to right now is kind of that that resourcefulness, that openness to like what's happening around you, that responsiveness and that ag- agility. You know, not everybody is super great at that. There are many people out there who like to have very defined roles for what they do, but someone who is entrepreneurial, they thrive in that kind of environment. Would you say that you you enjoy that kind of work, kind of having that that gaping freedom available to you to kind of experiment and try things. Talk, talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. I mean, not only was that a lot of my work in Chicago, because I did start a lot of initiatives. I did a lot of project management, a lot of new community ventures. You know, so for me, I get excited about that spark. I get excited about that sort of blank slate that you have to create something. And I really approach this work in a very similar way. You know, coming aboard here, again, this organization has been around over 20 years. But for me landing here, I approached it like a blank slate. I thought, well, here's a fantastic opportunity to restart an organization again, to think differently about the mission, about the vision, and think about what could become and what could happen. And so I automatically was kind of shaking things up. You can probably ask my staff to testify to this, but I was automatically shaking some of the thinking up, coming out of that sort of siloed workspace, doing more collaborative work, more team-based work, and really a lot of ideation. You know, coming from an ideas-based world, a lot of my work too has been around big ideas and sort of bringing ideas to fruition, which I think is so entrepreneurial that I really engage my staff that way and encourage them to come up with those seed ideas and let them let them blossom and challenge themselves and, and kind of shake things out of the typical and what they consider the framework they've been working in. Has that been hard for some people? It has been hard for some folks. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I'm a middle child, so in many ways I was born a mediator. You know, I've always used to folks <laughs> going through me to communicate to the person next to me. So yeah. I can try to shake folks up and have them do more of interacting with each other. I love that. Well, so, so what you're talking about, I think, I think it, it has the potential to be crucial for a lot of organizations out there. How do you break 
away from that status quo, tried and true kind of thinking to to completely pivot. So, so do you have any tips or tricks, you know, your your middle child sensibilities that kind of help you navigate with people who, who might not be as open or as just able, you know, I mean, honestly, like that kind of plasticity, that kind of like change, it, it, it's something that you have to practice almost, right? Like you have to, That's right. you have to, you have to stretch the discomfort button. I think. Um, so do you have any ways or any things that you employ to help your team do that? You know what I, I usually tell folks is that you have to practice what you preach, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. in these industries and in these fields, we are creating programs, right? That engage a visitor. We're creating experiences that sometimes put folks on a tightrope, you know, of, of, of sort of certainty of uncertainty of comfortability versus uncomfortability. We put them on an edge intentionally to give them sort of this vibrant experience, particularly around jazz. So I usually tell folks, we've got to put ourselves in that position too, right? So not only do we have to sort of set that plan for others, when I said plan to unplan, we need to be center of that as well, right? We need to be in that seat of a visitor. We need to be in that seat of a child that's showing up to learn about a jazz storytelling project where it's sort of brand new. You have no idea what's going to happen, but you go along for the ride and you talk to your neighbor, right? So these are sort of these sensibilities that sometimes I think we lose sight of because we just kind of get used to working uh, just kind of in a way that's regimented or we sort of do our job and we go home. But in the the art space and particularly in this music and jazz space, we've got so much at our hands and at our fingertips. So a lot of that is just think like a musician, right? is to just, you know, go play by play, trade verses with each other, trade phrases with each other. And we might not be doing that on an instrument proper, but we can do that through our work and the ways in which we communicate to each other and with each other. Yeah. That is fantastic. So, so, you, so the folks listening can't see this, but I've just been like nodding my head the entire time talking because I'm like, yes, yes, that's true. That's great. Uh, no, I love it. So, so thank you for sharing that. Um, so, so talk to me, I'm, I'm going to kick it back. Um, and I, we, we've kind of talked around this a little bit, but do you have a plan or plans or, you know, some exciting things on the horizon that you want to bring to fruition with the American Jazz Museum? You know, we're getting there. I had to do some restructuring when I got here to sort of with my staff, with our sensibilities and work processes, because we need to look towards the future. I think this organization is grounded in the past, and that's a beautiful thing when you have a historical cultural organization. But then what, right? I have a 12 and a 14 year old who is constantly saying to me, and then what, (laughs) right? We've got to come back to sort of thinking about their point of view, thinking about what the future generations are bringing to the table. So a lot of my plan and a lot of my thinking is, is future forward. Quite honestly, it's exploring more of this sort of technological space, which we've been forced to do with COVID, is to really think about bringing more young people in the doors and creating more awareness and understanding. We do have some programming for our youngsters. We have a jazz storytelling program for the itty bitties to learn about jazz. We also have a jazz academy for those middle and high schoolers who are interested in playing instruments. But then what, right? So we have to really think about some of the modern uh, takes on music today. I think about Janelle Monet, who is a fantastic sort of hometown girl who is who represents all of the opening up of barriers, right? If you, if you could find a figure that's not only important locally, regionally, but 
nationally and internationally, she has broken all of these barriers because she's just been herself. So I really want to take this museum in the direction of really understanding kind of a newfound identity. And that's not going to happen overnight. We have a 25th anniversary that's happening 2022. So hopefully when we get to that point, we can unveil some things along the way. But we've got to really kind of think from the future, which is an interesting way. It's almost like back to the future, right? We have to get back to the future in many ways instead of just sort of operating in our present and past time. Yeah. Well, I love that. I, I have to tell you, there there is a lot of conversation happening around the Innovator KC leadership tables when we found when you were announced as the new executive director, because of course you were like, she's a woman. She comes from Chicago. She's been doing all this stuff. Like we were just we were very excited. Um and we just we can't wait to see what um what you're able to to bring to fruition here in Kansas City. It's amazing. So so I wanna I wanna talk to you a little bit. I want to talk to you a little bit more about you. <laughs> and we, we'll talk about the American Jazz Museum. But I think one of the things that as we've been talking, I've been most um struck by is your your ability to to kind of change and adapt yet fundamentally remain the same like it feels like your core is like jazz is an important component of what you do but i think it sounds to me like even more so than that at your core you're a change agent and so what whatever you're doing wherever you're doing it your role is to to bring about positive change like innovator casey we call it radical positive change would you say that's true oh i know it to be true and not <laughs> only that it's tattooed on my body believe it or not no. a, a lyric from everything must change because you know i identified early on as a kid i kind of had a knowing about myself that I felt, you know, really comfortable in foundational spaces. I felt really comfortable. Um, you know, I'm a Taurus, so all of those sort of stereotypes of a, of a Taurus, you know, being kind of anchored, being loyal, being sort of in this confident space, all of the, that applies. But I knew that being shaken up would stir something in me. There was something about being uncomfortable that would take me to the next level. And there's something about change that does that. It sort of activates growth. I think I'd heard, I think years ago that it was, believe it or not, a lobster kind of outgrows its exoskeleton constantly. There's always pressure that's pushing up against that exoskeleton. So there's always this feeling of discomfort uh, with that growth. So I think that discomfort is important, right? There's something in that uncertainty that really forces you to another space. And I've embraced that. So I knew that early on as a kid, oh, I prefer to stay in those safe spaces, those safe uh, alleys. But I, I just knew that I needed to intentionally pivot myself and put myself in places of discomfort because it would force me to grow. And not only would it force me to grow, but something magical and amazing would come out of it. So now that I've embraced it, I like to sometimes put folks on edge. <laughs> and it's not you know, in ways to punish them, but it's in ways that I know that they will grow and the results that come out of it are something that they maybe would have never imagined. Yeah, no, no, I love that. Um, what's what's the other analogy that you can use? It's like if you put enough pressure on coal, it becomes a diamond kind of. That's thing. right. Uh, no, no, I love that. So, so tell me, tell me this though, because and this is something that I have learned through my own personal experience. Um, particular, it's been particularly accelerated 
over the course of the past few years, but um, people don't like discomfort generally. I think most people, and this is a ridiculous sentence, but most people are comfortable with comfort um, and that's kind of where they want to live. So throughout the the course of your life or your career, as you have kind of not just applied that internal pressure to constantly adapt and change and learn and grow, you've also had to kind of push it on others and some might've not been as ready. Um, right. So, so talk to me a little bit about that. What's that been like? You know, it's interesting being a disruptor sometimes, right? It's not always sort of of glitter and rainbows because, like you said, you do put yourself in a position, and it's 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 about vulnerability, quite honestly, because I put myself in the position as well. You know, when I'm sort of putting those uh, ideas within others, or I'm working with others and putting them in those positions and places, we don't know what's going to happen for both sides of us, right? So it certainly has been, there have been times that there have been pushback. You know, I remember a program that I was running in Chicago where I was working with a group of teachers, um, about 20 wonderful public school teachers. And if anyone understands uh, the the difficulty, or, or I should say the heroism that teachers have, I understand it even more now having <laughs> kids that were doing some online schooling because of COVID. <laughs> Absolutely. And my mother is a teacher, so I've already known sort of the value of, of that uh, position. But I had a group of teachers who were working in between, believe it or not, international baccalaureate which is an IB space. And, and folks who don't know IB, it's really a program that came out of a diplomatic structure. So kids of, of diplomats across the world who would move consistently would always have a program within IB that wherever they move, they would have the same sort of educational values, ideals, structures so that they wouldn't have a disruption in their, uh, their education. I'm saying all of that because this was layered into a public school scenario with you know discipline issues and lack of food for some folks and all kinds of students showing up. And the last thing the teachers wanted to see was me walking in the door with a program or a set of ideals that layered on top of what they were doing. So I had a resistance. I mean, I probably had half of a, I had about two dozen teachers, a good portion of them pushed back immediately said, I don't want to do this. If it's arts connected, great. I appreciate the arts. I don't have time. I don't have the energy to do anything else. Right. And so what we were doing is that we were pushing their teaching practice, right? We were saying, you need to utilize the arts as a tool because those are the things that students connect to. Students might not connect to the sort of traditional ways of learning. So the idea that you would bring in arts integration, which is the space I was in at the time, you would integrate the arts into your teaching practice. You're going to engage your students better. And these are some of the tools to do that. And so after a while, the ones that were the most resistant, and I mean, this was a, a three-year project, right? The ones in year one who were the most anti, who felt, I don't want to do this. I'm not sure why I'm in this program, were the ones at the end of the program that were championing the efforts, were the ones that embraced all of the ideas and all of the tools. And they were able to share with their other teachers and help their sort of their school environment and school communities across schools grow. So I mentioned that because that was a group that were they were fantastic people, but they were so they were so resistant in the beginning. I mean, I thought, am I working with the students here? Or am I working with some of the, you know, am I working with teachers? But they, at the end, really took it and, and went to a different level with it. It was just beautiful to see that they really had a breakthrough uh, in that space, in that tension that was created, in that disruption that was created to sort of flower and, and create something beautiful. 
Yeah. Well, and it sounds like you, you kind of had some, some early adopters and advocates and evangelists to, to help you along your way. And so, so, and I've seen that play out in my career. Like if you can even just get one or two people who really get it and then help distri- distribute and disseminate that message, I found that to be extremely helpful. Yeah. Those are the influencers, right? From somebody other than you. And it doesn't matter if it's a student, doesn't matter if it's a teacher, doesn't matter if it's, you know, Joe Schmo down the block. They just need to hear it from someone else. That's right. Yeah. So, so interesting. I, I, I love that. And I love that you have, you have the, uh, the wherewithal to push through that because, because a lot of people don't, they're just like, Oh, I got pushed back. No, we're cool. We'll, we'll stay in our comfort zone. Um, Interesting. Interestingly enough, like in the beginning, you kind of talked about leading a cultural revolution. And I, I, I find that I find that fascinating. So I'm going to ask you, what kind of revolution would you most like to lead? Oh, gosh. You know, I think the biggest revolution that I'm starting to lead now, and this is honestly with the help of my children, is really opening up that space more for young people, right? To not only put their voice out there to activate themselves, but to really make real choices, to to push us in real directions. And I say that because I, I always mention my oldest daughter, who is 14, and I call her my special advisor. Right. She really honestly is somebody that I can have real conversations with, that I can bring some real concrete problems to. And she comes up with solutions that are unbelievable. Right. So it's sort of this idea of backing off of ego in many ways. And and not that I have a huge one because I don't. But there's a, a reality check, I think, that comes in with young people. And when I say young, I mean, you know, Gen Z's, I, I mean, young folks, teenagers and younger. I think some we've got a real active millennial group. We've got a, you know, we've got a base of, of folks in my generation who are kind of in these started to get into these roles of leading organizations. But we also have these babies. We have these young folks who should have a voice at the table, you know, and they're not as young as we, we want. We think they are. I mean, of course, we want to protect a lot of childhood and a lot of innocence. But part of this revolution is really opening up those opportunities for the young to get in there and and impact change as well. Yeah, no, I love that. And so, so you're, you're, you're reaching out to younger generations. You're honestly like you, you, I think one of the core things that you bring to the table is your ability to unite all kinds of people. It sounds like, it sounds like that's something you've always the middle child. (laughs) Um, And so, so, so let me ask you this. Would you say that you're an empath? Oh, I definitely am an empath. Yeah. Absolutely. Is it it difficult, right? I mean, even particularly right now, like there are just so many headlines kind of pulling at your, your attention, but I imagine that would be difficult for someone who, who kind of feels what other others feel. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, sometimes I can only have these conversations with my closest friends because they get it or folks who understand what it is to lead through intuition. Right. Sometimes that scares folks because they feel as if you're kind of either blowing in the wind or you're just kind of, you know, you're you're sort of waving back and forth, depending on what the vibrancy in the air. But I'm absolutely an empath. And I think that's really critical and important to understanding 
the reasons and the ways that people move and make decisions and kind of navigate life the way that they do, right? Mm -hmm. You really have to have empathy. You have to have an understanding. You have to be able to sit down and listen and intuit what they may or may not know. And it's really quite an interesting uh, position to be in a leadership role and really utilize some of those skills moving forward. Yeah. Like that, that active listening, it, it goes beyond active listening. So, so I'm a little bit of an empath. You and I actually have a lot in common. I haven't said this, but I'm originally St. <laughs> Louis. I'm a former jazz singer. Um, yeah. So, so. You oh, know, wow. There you go. This. We got all kinds of stuff in common. But so, so one of the things that I've had to get super intentional about with, with being an empath, particularly right now, when there are so many people who are angry and fearful and, and, and rightfully so, you know, um, so, so dealing with that, one of the things I've had to get super intentional about is self-care. And I know that that's like one of the big buzzwords, but do you, do you take time for self-care? Do you have strategies that you can deploy to kind of rest and bring yourself back to center? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I think meditation is important. Getting outdoors, nature is critical. You know, when I was sort of locked down in, in COVID, I really made time to get out and explore some of the natural spaces in the area that really provided a lot of fresh air and sanity and just kind of a, an understanding of the global space that we're in right now. So certainly that's important. Uh, I love to indulge in all kinds of foods. I'm definitely a foodie. <laughs> so I've enjoyed kind of getting out and about and trying to sort of understand uh, what cuisines that they have here in Kansas City and been very pleased with what I've found so far. So there's that piece. Uh, and just really spending time listening, learning, uh, exploring with my, my kids has really been an amazing time. Just again, allowing them to sort of be in the driver's seat and for me to relax, for them to cook the meal them to cook the dinner, <laughs> for them to bring me a cup of tea, because I have to have my cup of tea. So that's really been lovely in terms of that. And it's something that, quite honestly, that I've insisted on with my staff. So that's part of a big sea change, I think, that's happened here at the organization, too, is that when we got back in the in the building itself, this was a week before our doors reopened, we really spent a lot of time Uh, having conversations with each other. We spent a lot of time on mental wellness. We spent a lot of time on some of the soft skills around, soft skills around uh, sort of communication, what it means to have a moment to yourself, what it means to take a break when when needed. So a lot of that I really instilled in my staff and I still do. And I say, hey, you know, if you, you've got to step away from this and you've got to take some time, let me know. You know, you can't lead through force there. I mean, Discomfort is one thing, force is another, you know, and there are folks who are dealing with all kinds of things behind the scenes. So I've been a really understanding and and compassionate, leading through compassion as well, and allowing a lot of flexibility, I think, with my staff and my team here at the museum as well. That is lovely. And I'll be honest, I don't hear enough leaders of organizations who kind of prioritize not just the physical health and wellness, but that mental piece. Um, so, so totally commend you for that. That's, that's amazing. We have to remove the stigma around mental illness, anxiety, you know, we're not going to fix it unless we can talk about it openly and, and right. claim the space that we need to, to heal and to be better. So, so that is, 
That's amazing. I love that. Are you gearing up for the American Jazz Museum to be one of the the top places to work in Kansas City? Because sounds like you're well on the path. <laughs> Absolutely. And we've got great neighbors here too with a Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. So I can't complain. Just the space is golden, as I mentioned. It's really kind of a dream come true to come here and work every day. Yeah. Well, so so I have to tell you, usually at this point, I ask, I, I'm going to ask you two silly questions. I usually ask a, a silly question just because I like to, and you know, it's my deal. I get to, um, but I'm going to ask you two. And this, the first one isn't so silly, but I'm just super, super interested to hear your answer. Do you have a favorite jazz artist? You know, Sarah Vaughn is honestly the reason that I sing. She was the one that I fell in love with her sort of rich, velvety voice. And when I say in love, I mean in love, all of the feelings that you feel, kind of this lightheartedness, this sort of dreamy space. I fell in love with her voice when I started to sing uh, in high school. And it was just sort of a magical and glorious and buttery sound that I just, I love. It just feels so good to me. That's amazing. Okay. I, I I love that. Yeah, that that's going to be another conversation that you and I are going to have with like a cocktail in hand. Or yeah, absolutely. I love it. Um, all right. So now I have to think of another silly question. And it's going to be if you if you were a superhero, what would you like your power to be? It can be anything. Oh, I know it's a tough question, right? I think at this point, maybe teleporting. I don't know. I had this sort of dream idea that I was going to go on a Caribbean vacation this summer because we're kind of in lockdown mode. I wish I could just, you know, in the ways of the Star Trek Enterprise, you would just sort of, you know. Did you just, uh, you just Star Trek, like, rough right there? Yeah. Live long and proud. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I wish I could just kind of, you know, fade away and then appear, reappear on an island. Yeah. So I think that one would be great. You're an island person. Like, are you the oh, yeah. person who's on the beach sipping the Mai Tai or are you windsurfing and then, you know, scaling cliffs or a healthy mix of both? A healthy mix of both. Okay. Yeah. Good for you. As well as eating some of that food. So I love fish and <laughs> I love seafood. So there you go. Um, well, well, I love that. And I, I cannot thank you enough for being here with us today. Rashida, this has been a great conversation. Um, I knew it was going to be good. I'm I'm not at all surprised, but thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. It's been a joy. Oh, good, good. Well, and so, so thank you so much for listening, folks. We are, are so glad that you chose to come back with us for yet another episode of the Startup Hustle podcast. Once again, today's episode of Startup Hustle was sponsored by Fullscale.io. You can find us on Instagram at Startup Hustle Podcast or check out our YouTube channel. Thanks so much and hope you have a, a great rest of your week. Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.